This morning's scripture reading will be from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This is an amazing section of scripture that Brian will be teaching through today. We hope, I hope and pray even as I read it that God would show you these um, pictures or typologies or shadows of, of Jesus. The text, the Bible is all about a person. It's all about Jesus. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid, on, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not, stretch your hand, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham, Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. This is the word of God. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that your spirit would come and unfold the riches of this text to us. Show us Jesus. I pray that beyond anything else, Lord, that you would show us Jesus Christ and all of his glory, and show us also the Father and his love for us and his willingness to give his Son. I pray that you'd help me, Lord, to remember the things you've taught me, that I would be able to bring them to, to this church, these precious people, Lord. These are souls that will live eternally in heaven or hell. Lord, help me to speak to them as a dying man, to dying men never sure to speak again. I pray that you would give me the ability to bring forth the beauty of the gospel, that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you in a saving way, they would get it. Lord, Holy Spirit, you would unfold to them the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to that end, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 22, we have probably the greatest test of faith that anyone has ever been given. Can you imagine a greater test of faith than for God to require that you kill and offer and sacrifice one of your children? I, I can't imagine a greater test. But Abraham, according to Romans chapter 4, is the father of all who believe. So what that means is that if you are a believer, Abraham is your father. God has given us the example of Abraham to teach us what real faith is. 
what genuine supernatural faith is all about. In fact, over in that hall of faith, it's Hebrews chapter 11, where we have the heroes of faith. Three times, the Bible says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abraham did that. By faith, Abraham did the other. He's truly a man of faith. And God wants us to, to learn this morning about faith. And also, he wants to teach us about the, the giving of the Father up of the Son for the redemption of human beings, redemption of the human race. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at this faith of Abraham in three parts. First, the test of faith. Then secondly, the obedience of faith. And then thirdly, the results of faith. Okay, so first of all, the test of faith. Verse 1, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I want to ask you a question. When did this test occur, according to verse 1? After these things. Yeah, after these things. After what things? Well, we're not told specifically, but I would say, first of all, it was after all of the former tests that Abraham had already been given. The first test is God appeared to him when he lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham was an idolater living in this pagan nation, this, this Gentile land, and God appeared to him, and God said, I want you to leave this country and go to a country that I'm going to show you. That was his first test. Abraham passed. He didn't know where he was going. He had to leave all of his relatives behind in Ur and just set out. He took his nephew Lot with him and his father-in-law uh, Tahor, I believe, and his, his wife. And the four of them took off on this caravan trip. And God eventually showed him where he was to go. And then along the way, he had other tests, didn't he? God required that he give up his, well, I guess you'd call her a concubine, uh, Hagar, and his, his son, Ishmael. And he had to separate from them. He also was to separate from Lot. So all along the way, God is requiring that he separate from these dearly loved persons. His relatives, then his father-in-law died, then he leaves Lot, his nephew, and then he has to separate from Hagar and his, his blood son, Ishmael. And I imagine when Abraham got to chapter 22, he's breathing a sigh of relief because he's thinking, whew, all those tests are over with. Isaac's finally here, the son of the promise, easy street from now on. But little did he know that God was going to require the greatest test that he would ever face at that point. So it was after the things, after the former tests. But if we just think real contextually, it was after the test of the things of chapter 21. What took place in chapter 21 that was so significant? Well, Isaac is born. And Abraham had been waiting and waiting and waiting patiently. For 25 years, God made the promise that he would have a son and that through that son, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Abraham had just kept waiting for God to fulfill the promise. And finally, God came through when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. So he was a miracle baby. The son of the promise. Here he is. And it was after those things when Abraham's heart was bound up in this child. His hopes and his dreams were in this boy. And by this time, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 22, I surmise that Isaac is probably in his late teens or early 20s. And I'll tell you why later in the chapter. He's not a little boy. He's not a baby. He's probably a, a grown man. He's a young man at this time. But Abraham's hopes and dreams are bound up in this man. And God comes to Abraham and tells him that he requires him to offer that son as a burnt offering. So after these things. Secondly, who is the person that gave the test? Well, our text says it was God. God tested Abraham. Now, the King James says God tempted Abraham, which has got to be a very poor translation because James tells us that God tempts no one. So this wasn't tempting to sin. It was a test of faith to see what was in Abraham's heart to see whether he would actually obey the Lord when it came to the most difficult thing that Abraham could ever imagine. Now, 
God not only tested Abraham, God will also test you and me. You believe that? A lot of Christians don't believe that. They believe that suffering in our life is never from God. It's always from Satan. It's always from the devil. Well, don't you know this was suffering for Abraham to go through this anguish of soul? Remember, he's got three days that he's living and, and anticipating the time when he's going to have to plunge that knife into the heart of his son. There's real suffering going on. And God is the one that did that. The text tells us God tested Abraham. And I want to show you a text in 1 Peter chapter 1 that tells us that God does the same thing for his children. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what's the point here? Peter is saying, God has laid upon you folks some, some distressing trials. Why? Because he wants your faith to be proven. He says your faith is like gold. And the way you prove gold is by putting it in the fire. When that gold goes into the fire, it melts, and the dross surfaces to the top, and then that's skimmed from the top, and you're left with pure gold at that point. And so Peter is saying, your faith is like gold, and just as gold is purified and shown to be precious as it goes through the fire, so you are going through these fires of trials, these distressing trials to prove the character of your faith. And that's what's God, what God is doing here with Abraham. He's proving the character of Abraham's faith. Now, thirdly, what was the trial? What was the test of faith that God gave to Abraham? Well, take a look at verse, verse 2. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now look at every word of that sentence. Take now your son. Abraham could have said, well, Lord, I've got two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. Which one are you talking about? Your only son. The Lord. Both of these boys are the only son of their mother. Which one are you talking about? whom you love. Well, Lord, I love them both. You know I do. Isaac, <laughs> to get the point across. Now there's no guessing. There's no speculation. He knows exactly what God is requiring. And he says, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. I did some reading about the burnt offering in Leviticus. I believe it's chapter 5. But the burnt offering, this is what they were to do. They were to take an animal and they were to slit the throat of that animal and let the blood shed let it just drain. And then they had to cut up that animal into pieces and put it on the wood of the altar and then consume that animal completely until all that were left were ashes. This is what God is requiring Abraham to do. Slit the throat of his son, let him bleed to death, and then cut him up into pieces. Lay him on the wood of the altar and then burn him up until there's nothing left. Talk about a test of faith. <laughs> wow. But that's what God was requiring Abraham to do of his son. That was the test. Now, notice also the place of the test. Where was this test supposed to take place? Verse 2 says it was the land of Moriah, one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, the land of Moriah was a three-day journey away, some 45, 50 miles. Abraham had three days. Don't you know what was going through his mind all day long as he's traveling. He's thinking about what he's got to do. He had time to back out, didn't he? He had, if he went through with this, it was going to be a deliberate decision, not a spur of the moment thing. He, it was going to be after deliberating, making up his mind that he was going to obey the will of God. So there's the test of faith. Now, what about the obedience of faith? 
there were difficulties in Abraham's obedience. Real strong difficulties. Number one, the difficulty that this command of the Lord contradicted God's law. Look back at chapter 9, verse 6. God gave law to humanity after the flood. In Genesis 9, 6, God said to Noah and to his family, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. God is instituting capital punishment here. He's saying if you kill somebody, you're going to be killed yourself. You shed their blood, your blood's going to be shed. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. You don't go around killing people. These people are made in the very image of God. So I'm sure Abraham is just struggling. Well, Lord, you are unchangeable, aren't you? Didn't you say that I am forbidden to kill other people? And here you are requiring me to kill my own son? It must have thrown him into all kinds of consternation. So it contradicted God's law. It also contradicted his own natural affection, didn't it? God was requiring him to do something that was completely against the grain of his nature. His nature is a father to love and to cherish his son, and especially this son. The son that had taken so long for the promise to arrive, and here he came, and God's requiring that he give that son up. And then also it required, um, it went against all reason. When God required Abraham to separate from his son Ishmael, God gave him a reason. He said, it was through Isaac that your descendants will be named. So you must separate from this son. Isaac is the heir. He gave him a reason. God gave him no reason in this text. Abraham has to offer up his son, and he will never know why. Isaac has to be willing to be offered up, as we will see later. And he doesn't know why. There's no reason given. They're going because God said it. Now, one thing that Abraham knew for sure is that God told him to do it. He was sure of that. He didn't know why. He didn't know why God would require him to do something that contradicted something he already said, but he knew that God had said it. And it also contradicted God's promise. Because if you look back just one chapter to uh, chapter 21, verse 12, God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Here's the promise. Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to the entire world, but the way that's going to happen is through your son Isaac. Through him. He's the heir. And so Abraham's thinking, okay, Lord, through Isaac, all my descendants will be named. If I kill him, how am I going to have any descendants? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. He must have been really struggling with all this. And on top of that, it contradicted a good testimony. Can you imagine what the Egyptians or the Canaanites would have thought when they found out that Abraham, supposedly a man of God, killed his own son? So all these things are working against him. They're all difficulties in him taking the step of obedience. But now let's look at the steps of obedience that he followed, and we're just going to work our way through the text. The first one, verse 3 says that he rose early in the morning. That must mean that God communicated to him in the night. Maybe it was through a dream, maybe a vision in the night. God spoke to him and spoke to him clearly. And I'm sure that Abraham didn't sleep a wink after that. How could he? So he rises early in the morning, but he doesn't rise early in the morning to argue with God or to murmur against God or to complain against God. None of that is in the text. All it says is he rose early and he starts getting ready for the journey. He obeys immediately. Talk about supernatural faith. We're seeing it in this man. Secondly, he prepares the sacrifice. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him. He's going to need more than one for this trip. He took Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and went to the place which God had told him. So he's preparing to obey God. He's taking the wood, he's taking servants, he's taking the donkey, he's taking Isaac. He's taking the method of pre uh, preparing fire for the burnt offering. 
And then we find them journeying. It says he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. So we don't know how Abraham knew the right mountain. Originally, God says, go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham starts off, must be reminiscent of when God came to him in Ur and said, go to the place of which I'm going to tell you. And he just starts off and God directs him along the way. Well, somehow God told him which mountain he was to go to. And notice it's a very specific mountain. It's not any old mountain. Any mountain won't do. It's got to be a particular one. There's a reason for that that we're going to uncover later in our sermon today. So, how did God let him know? Well, he could have spoken to him audibly. He could have had some sign in the heavens over the particular mountain, some pillar of fire or something. We just don't know. But in some way, God let him know which mountain he was to go to. So he journeys on for three days. And then we find him actually preparing himself well, no, before that, we find him actually walking together with Isaac. He leaves his servants behind, starting in verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now, why do you think he told the servants to stay behind at this point? Yeah. So they wouldn't try to stop him. If they knew what their master was about to do, they'd probably think he's out of his mind and do whatever they had to to stop him from uh, killing a son. Do you think Abraham told Sarah about this journey before he left, or what he was going to do on the journey? How could he? I mean, this has got to be the hardest part of obedience, because you're, if God doesn't raise him from the dead, you're coming back alone, and you're going to have to tell your wife, I just killed your son, Sarah. I mean, talk about divorce and <laughs> marriage problems. Wow. But anyway, see, he, he goes off, just him and Isaac, and they're walking on together, leaving the servants behind. Verse 6 says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. Imagine what would have been going through Abraham's mind when his son said, My father! Abraham must have been thinking, I'm not worthy to be your father. In a few moments, I'm going to be your murderer. How can I even call myself your father? How could a father act so cruelly toward his son? I mean, each, as, it, as Isaac says these things, it must have been like daggers going into his heart. My father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, that's a totally reasonable question, isn't it? He's got the means for the fire. Maybe it was flint. He's got the wood, because it's on the back of Isaac. He's carrying the wood. And Isaac knows whenever you have an offering, you have to have an animal. Where's the lamb? We see everything else. Where is he? Dad, this doesn't make sense. And so Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I believe that Abraham begins to speak here prophetically as a prophet. I don't think he knew it, but his words are prophetic because God would provide for himself a lamb, not simply the ram that is going to be caught in the thickets, but prophetically 2,000 years later, there's going to be the lamb of God that God will provide, not just for Abraham or for Isaac, but for the entire world, a worldwide savior. And so the two of them walked on together. Verse 10. No, let's back up. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar. And he arranged the wood. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So you see, he is absolutely determined to go through with this. He, he brushes aside his feelings as a dad. I, I wonder what's going on in these last moments. I imagine Abraham probably telling his son Isaac, God has required me to do this, son. He told me very specifically, I can't dodge it. I can't escape it. I must do it. 
God is worthy of my obedience and I must obey, but I also know that this God can do anything. And if necessary, he can raise you from the dead. And so he bends over him, he gives him a kiss, he gives him a final hug, and then he raises the knife high on the, the, the air, ready to plunge it into the, the, the throat or the, the chest of his son. And that's when the angel stays his hand. But Abraham is absolutely determined that he's going to fulfill the will of God, the obedience of faith. Now, what are the results of this test of faith? Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now, notice, first of all, the angel of the Lord said this. Who's the angel of the Lord? Well, let's take a look. The angel of the Lord said to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord is not Michael or Gabriel or one of the other angels that we think of. The word angel means messenger. The messenger of the Lord here, I believe, is none other than Jesus Christ. How can you have him talking about God and talking about him as though they're the same being off? issuing this command. The only way you can have that is if God is a trinity, if there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are all one in essence. And so here, the messenger of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, tells Abraham, don't do it, because now I know that you fear me. So I believe that's who the angel of the Lord is here. In fact, we're going to find out when we get to verses 15 to 18. Well, let's just read them. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the angel of the Lord is speaking as though he's the Lord himself, which is true. Jesus is the Lord himself. So here we have a pre-incarnate appearance, uh, a speaking forth of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. Now, what does he say? Verse 12. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Here he says, I know that you fear God. Do you know how you can know if somebody fears God? They're willing to part with the most precious possession that they have. That's an evidence that somebody fears God. If you are unwilling to part with your money, you don't fear God very much. If you're unwilling to part with your time, you don't fear the Lord very much. You know, the last song we sang, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's talking about what Abraham did. A person who fears the Lord gives his life. He gives all that he has to the Lord. And if that requires him giving up his family, what if the Lord required one of you to give up a son or a daughter to be a missionary and you knew that they were never going to return? Could you do that? Well, if you feared God, you could. So that was the test. Isaac is spared. Isaac is rescued because God now knows. Of course, he always knew, but now he knows in the sense that Abraham knows, Isaac knows, and all of us today who read the story know that Abraham feared the Lord. So Isaac is rescued. Secondly, Abraham's approved. Look at the second part of verse 12. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Because you have done this, I'm going to spare your son. Because now I know that you fear God. And then thirdly, we find God himself providing the sacrifice. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. 
Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, Moses is the one who wrote this book. So hundreds of years later, Moses says, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. In other words, Abraham, again, speaking prophetically, decides to name this mountain. And he names it Jehovah-Jireh. God not has provided, which would have been natural, but God will provide. Speaking as a prophet, he sees that there is a day to come. Remember Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced and was glad. I believe it was this story, this situation in which he saw prophetically that there was a day coming when another father would offer up another son on that very mountain not just for himself, but for all mankind. So Isaac's rescued. Abraham's approved. God provides for himself a sacrifice. Now I want to draw this story to a conclusion by focusing on two different strands. First of all, I want to show you the death of Christ. And then secondly, I want to show you the devotion of a Christian. They're both here. First of all, the death of Christ. There are tremendous parallels between what we see here and what we see actually fulfilled, the anti-type, the reality behind the shadow where we see Christ crucified. Now the first one is the description God gives to Abraham of his son Isaac. He says, he's your only son, the son whom you love. Your only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now we are sons of God in a sense, but Jesus is the son of God in a unique sense that none of us will ever have. He is deity. He's God. He has always been the son of the father, the only begotten of the father. And also the son whom you love. You remember what God the father said when Jesus was baptized? Yeah, my beloved son, the son of my love, Colossians 1 says. Oh, the love between the father and the son. Abraham and Isaac was just a faint hint at what we see between the father and the son. The incredible supernatural love between the members of the Trinity. God wants us to see that here. Notice also that Isaac was required to bear the wood upon which he would be offered. Put it on his back. And he carried it. Can you think of another son who bore the wood that he would be offered on? Jesus Christ, he had that crossbeam as he walks up the Via Della Rosa. And that crossbeam was that which he would be offered on and nailed to, pierced to. We also find in the story that twice we're told the two walked on together. Notice the end of verse 6. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 8. So the two of them walked on together. Whenever something is repeated in Scripture, take note of it. It's usually important. It's usually there because emphasis is being made of that thing. Why is it important that the two of them walked on together? Of course they did. There wasn't anyone else with them. I think God is trying to get our attention here. The Father and the Son made an agreement before the world was made. The Father agreed that He would choose out from this world a great number of people, a multitude that no band could number, and he would give these people to his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus agreed to come into the world to save them, to represent them, to obey the law perfectly for them, to lay down his life bearing their sins on the cross, on the tree, and then rise again for them, and ascend for them, and intercede for them. And he has this group of people in mind. The Bible calls this group of people the church, or his sheep or the elect. They're a specific group that Christ came into the world for. And this compact, this agreement was made between the Father and the Son. And ever since that agreement was made, the Father and the Son started walking on together towards the cross. And at the very end, you notice that Abraham and Isaac are alone. Nobody else is with them. In a very real sense, the transaction at the cross was made between the Father and the Son. We think Jesus died for us, and that's true.
But in a very deeper sense, Jesus was dying for God. He was dying as a burnt offering. He was dying as a sacrifice, not only for sin, but out of the will of God to fulfill the compact, the agreement that he had made with his father. So we can't see it. We can't enter in within the veil to see what was happening between the father and the son. But the two of them were walking on together. And this was made for the eyes of his father. It reminds me of that text over in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. This is verse 1 and 2. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus was mostly concerned about his sacrifice being a fragrant aroma to his Father, pleasing in the sight of his Father. So the two of them walked on together. Okay, back in Genesis chapter 22. I believe that Isaac actually submitted himself to die. I know that's not stated explicitly in this text, but I want to try to, to show you why I believe that. The Hebrew word for lad, Isaac's called a lad here, is na'ar, N-A-A-R. And it, it is a word that has a wide range of meaning. It can be used of an infant, and it can be used of a 56-year-old man. We have instances in the Bible of both, but almost all of the other instances in the Scripture are of a young man, somewhere between 17 and maybe 22, 23 years old. In fact, the two servants are called young men. It's the very same Hebrew word that Isaac is called. Ishmael, when he was 17, was used, he was referred to by this Hebrew word. So I believe that Isaac is probably in his late teens or his early 20s. Now, how old would that make Abraham? Go on, do the math. Probably between 115 and 125 years old. Here we've got this young man, 20 years old, let's say, and a father who's 120 years old. I don't think it's going to be very hard for Isaac to run away from his dad if he wants to or to overpower his dad. He's young, he's strong, and his dad is getting way up in years. It would be easy for him to overpower his father or to run if he had wanted to. And that leads me to the conclusion that Isaac must have been willing to submit to his father, which is almost as incredible as Abraham being willing to offer his son. If that is true, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. In other words, Jesus wasn't going to that cross because he couldn't have stopped it. Do you remember? He said, I could call on a legion of angels right now, and they'd wipe out all these people trying to kill me. It would have been easy for Jesus to avoid the cross if he had so chosen to. But he chose willingly and voluntarily to lay down his life there at the cross. We also find here in the story that a ram was provided as a substitute for Isaac. And that's where the type breaks down. Because when Jesus, Jesus actually was asking his father on the night before he went to the cross, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, what cup was he talking about? Do you know? the cup of suffering, the cup of the wrath of God. He knew he was going to be cut off from fellowship with his father, and he had never faced that in his life before. Never in all eternity had there been any breach of fellowship between the father and the son, and that's what was going to happen to him. On top of that, the sin of the world was going to be placed on him. The stench and the filth of our sin was going to cover this pure and holy one. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of your wrath pass from me. But it wasn't possible because for our redemption, it required a God, not a God, but the God who became a man because we're the ones who had sinned. God had to become a man, take on our nature, suffer in our place so that we could be redeemed. There's only one person ever who fits that description. It's Jesus. And so it was not possible for him to escape 
these sufferings if we were ever to be redeemed. So there was a ram caught in the thicket that saved Isaac, but there was no ram caught in the thicket that saved Christ. There was no one else. There was no one else. And so he willingly went to bore the agony of the cross. But then we also find a, a real beautiful parallel here, here because Isaac is received back after how many days? Well, God gave the command how many days ago that he would have to be put to death? Three. So in Abraham's mind, from the moment God gave that command, Isaac was dead to him. In his mind, he resolved that he was going to give him up to death. So to him, he was dead. Three days later, he's received back from the dead into the fellowship of his father. And then he goes back to Abraham's home. We read in verse 19, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they, that's all of them, arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So after Jesus is offered up in sacrifice by his father, he ascends back to his father's house where he's now preparing a place for us. So Jesus is received back from the dead. And we're told that this is an actual fulfillment of prophecy in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to share that with you. Hebrews 11 verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendant, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So we know that Isaac is a type of Christ because Hebrews 11:19 tells us. We also know that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. And that's why he was willing to go through with the sacrifice. Well, all of this was to picture another son offered by another father who actually came back from the dead. You folks believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? You cannot be saved unless you believe that. Let me just tell you that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It takes faith and a resurrected Christ for anyone to go to heaven. And that's typified here in our story. Jesus was not just sort of rescued. He was literally raised bodily from the dead on the third day. Okay, back to Genesis 22. The last thing I want to show you, the parallel here, is the actual place where God required Abraham to offer up Isaac. Verse 2 says it was in the land of Moriah. If you check 2 Chronicles 3, 1, well, let's just do that. Just so you know, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. <laughs> 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Interesting. God told Abraham to go to the land of Moriah and offer him on a mountain of which he would show him. We're told here that Jerusalem is right there in the land of Moriah. Now, we're told that it wasn't just good enough for him to go to the land of Moriah. He had to go to a very particular mountain in the land of Moriah. We see that all over the place. Verse 2 says, One of the mountains of which I will tell you. Verse 3, He went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, he saw the place from a distance. Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him. It wasn't any old place, it was the place. A particular mountain. In Luke chapter 23, we're told that the soldiers brought Jesus to the place. The place of the skull. It's my conviction that Abraham offered up Isaac on the very same mountain that Jesus Christ would later be offered up on. Remember, Jesus was offered up on a mountain right outside of Jerusalem, right outside of the temple precincts. That's where this is going on. And God is wanting to prefigure. He's, this is sort of a dress rehearsal of the cross. And isn't it a trip to think that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, and he's watching this whole thing, 
knowing that in 2,000 years, he's the one who's going to be actually going through it. And he's watching Abraham offer up his son, knowing that his father is going to be offering him up on the same mountain, different time, but he was not going to actually die, and he was going to actually rise from the dead. Now, there we have the cross, the cross of Christ, the death of Christ. If there's anybody here this morning who is not yet saved, this is your answer right here, what we're talking about. You cannot be saved apart from your faith and what God did in giving up his son to die for sinners. The work that Jesus accomplished on that cross was perfect. It's finished. It's completed. That's why the Bible says that we're not saved by our works, as though we would insult God by trying to add something of our own to what he's already done. If the work is already perfect and it's already completed, then what's left to do? Rest in the work. Receive the work. Trust in the work. Those are all biblical expressions. That's what God is asking you, my friends, to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. Believe in it, trust in it, and rest in it. And give God the glory for being so loving and willing to receive sinners like you and I. Now, secondly, let's look at the devotion of the believer, the devotion of the Christian. If you're saved here today, God has something for you to learn from Abraham's example. Notice God was requiring of Abraham supreme devotion. He was telling Abraham to give up the thing that he prized more than life itself. This wasn't just a son. This was his posterity. This was his name being uh, carried on after he died. This was his hopes and his dreams and his aspirations. And it was also his very own blood son. All of that was wrapped up in this child. And God was requiring Abraham to offer him. Well, the New Testament equivalent is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. God requires the Christian to love God supremely. Remember, Jesus said, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love husband or wife more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. In other words, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, demands supreme devotion. And let me tell you, if, if, if anybody is here thinking, well, I'm, I'm considering following Christ, but I'm not sure what it means. It means you give up your old life. It means that you're willing to surrender and give supreme devotion to him. Now, you're going to fail at that, admittedly. We all do. But that is the goal, and that is the aim and direction of the rest of your life, to give Christ supreme allegiance and supreme devotion. He's worthy of it. So God requires supreme devotion. God also requires immediate obedience. He required Abraham to do this immediately. And the, the, the amazing thing is Abraham did it. He obeyed immediately. Delayed obedience is really disobedience, isn't it? If we say to the Lord, well, okay, Lord, I'll get to that sometime. You're disobeying. When our kids were little, we had this principle we call first-time obedience. And we, if we told them to do something, and they didn't do it immediately, they got a little swat. Because we're trying to teach them that obedience means to do it when you're told, not when you feel like it. Abraham obeyed when he was told. And God is requiring us to obey when we are told. Has God been convicting you of something? Perhaps he's been telling you he wants you to be a, a, a better steward with your finances, let's say. Maybe he's been telling you to turn off the television when those trashy shows are on. And you say, okay, well, Lord, I'll get around to that someday. I'll, I'll become a better steward. I'll invest my money in your work, but not right now because I'd really like to get that new car. See, that's delayed obedience. Or I'll, I'll turn off the trashy shows later after this sizzling miniseries is over. Or I'll... I'll 
I'll start being diligent and disciplined with my eating habits after the holidays and all those pies and cakes and candies are all gone. You see my point? When God calls us to obedience, he wants us to obey then, immediately. So supreme devotion, immediate obedience. He also wants us to lay aside anything that would hinder us from obedience. And Abraham did that. He didn't tell Sarah, and he didn't tell the servants, because he knew they would hinder him from obeying what God had told him to do. And sometimes people will actually tell you not to obey God. I remember Randy Elkhorn telling a story once. And in his story, what he was saying is that there was a, a fellow in his church whom, who believed that God had put on his heart that he, he wanted him to sell his house and give the proceeds from the sale of that house to the work of God. And so he shared that with his Bible study group. And every person in that Bible study group talked him out of doing what God had put on his heart to do. Sometimes people can hinder us from obeying God. And we must not allow people from doing that. If God has told you to do something, we must lay aside those hindrances and must obey God rather than man. And then finally, we've got to be willing to obey God even when it's painful. Now, usually, God's will for us will be something that we will have a desire to do. In other words, when, when, when God gives you a spiritual gift and calls you to invest your life, usually you find satisfaction and, and, uh, and joy in serving the Lord. But there are times when God requires us to do things that we do not want to do that are extremely painful, and that doesn't mean that God hasn't told us to do it. I know some people say, well, if God wants me to do this or that, then he'll put a desire in my heart to do it. Not necessarily. Did Jesus have a desire in his heart to suffer the anguish that he suffered? Well, he had the joy, for the joy set before him, the ultimate end of it, yes, there was joy in that. But he cringed when it came to looking forward to what that cross was going to mean for him. It was extremely, extremely painful. We can't even enter behind the veil. We can't even understand what the Father and the Son were going through during those moments. And God may call you to make choices that are very painful, that are hard, that are difficult. But God is wanting us to say yes. Yes, Lord. No matter what that call happens to be. May God help us. May God help us this day. If he's been putting something on your heart, you know that he wants you to do a particular thing to say yes, Lord, and actually follow through and obey him in that. Let's pray. Father, would you give grace to your children today to obey the will of the Father? And at the same time, may you give them grace to see the work of the Son there at Calvary's cross. Lord, we're thankful that our salvation does not depend upon our perfect obedience. We're thankful that it depends on the perfect obedience of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that it's completed, that the work is done, that it's over, and it's perfectly fulfilled on our behalf, and we simply enter into that by faith. Lord, help us to prepare our hearts even now to receive the bread and the wine of communion and to truly remember what our gracious Savior has done for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.